Mike Sachs is a hybrid published humorist with multiple novels and collaborations under his belt. He'd been contributing humor pieces to national magazines and papers for a number of years before truly hitting his stride. As a student of comedy, his epiphany moment was realizing that for legends like George Carlin and Richard Pryor, it was only when they dropped the pretense and became themselves that their careers truly took off. Since that time, he's been focused on projects that are purely for his own joy and benefit. When he self-published Stinker Let's Loose, a 1970s trucker satire, he couldn't have predicted that someone would produce that idea into an audiobook starring John Hamm. To learn more about Mike Sachs, writing comedy and satire, and learning from the greats, be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher of choice. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the Patreon offerings. I've got some good ones for you. Thanks so much for being a listener and supporter of the show. Enjoy today's interview. I listened to your remastered David Sedaris episode of your podcast last night. Oh, good. Yeah, that's been a while now. Um, I imagine so. It's <laughs> uh, I was sort of in a bad way in that, at that time period, and, and I was, uh, truth be told, a bit drunk when I interviewed him. I had gone drinking before I uh, met up with him. I mean, we had been friends friendly before, so it wasn't like mm-hmm. I had never met him. But uh, I think that interview was a bit looser than it would have been if I were to do it now. It, it, it kind of had the green room feel to it. <laughs> I'm sure it did. <laughs> You know, I'd, I wonder what happens when when you're you know when you're drinking and you're interviewing somebody and they bring up their sobriety. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, what happens at that point. Right, it's, it's happened to me a few times. Um, I, I mean, I truthfully, I just like to be honest about it. Um, yeah, I think that makes the interview uh, adds more depth. Um, yeah. I think people can tell when you're bullshitting. Maybe I, I sometimes tell people too much, you know, about various things. I've talked about the medicine I'm on and mm-hmm. the exact uh, dosage and all that. And mm-hmm. my father was sort of taken aback by it. You know, he came from the generation where you don't say anything. I come from the generation where you never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so I'm not sure if there's, there, there's a middle ground. Um, I might want to lean more towards that. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Like, I. I think we've entered into the era where, for the moment, we are our own gatekeepers, and and there's no real precedent for that. Like, you know, and I no, suppo- it's uncharted territory. Yeah, and I I can see, you know, as an author, you know, writes sci-fi, like I could project out, <clears throat> you know, scenarios where that would be disadvantageous for you too to disclose that kind of information. And... Well, that's the thing. Um, I do think 
and feel strongly that this is the best time to be a young writer because there's more opportunity than there ever has been in history. Um, at the same time, there's more at stake and there's more that can go wrong and the margin of error is a lot thinner. Mm. So you do have to take that into consideration. I mean, there is, you know, you can, you can be an, a starting writer, you can have as many readers as any publication out there. Yeah. Um, it never existed in the past. When I was starting out, it was, it was zines, you know, it was Xerox zines and you put it in Tower Records. Now you can have as many readers as a New Yorker has potentially. Yeah. But it, it comes with the, the negative aspect is sometimes a lot of people aren't ready uh, with their writing toolbox and also with the knowledge of what, <clears throat> of the power of the written word. And I think a lot of people uh, learn to their detriment pretty quickly. Mm. Well, before we go any further with that, because I can see you're just ready to jump off into the deep end here. Um, Mike Zacks, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, you know, one of my canned questions is, you know, I, I like to let my guests introduce themselves. So, like, what would you like to share about yourself for the audience? Wow. Okay. Well, I, it doesn't seem so long ago that I was starting off. And <clears throat> I do like to help younger writers. There, I guess there are two ways you can take it. You can say, well, no one helped me when I was starting off, so I'm not going to help anyone. Or hmm. you can say, um, no, I'm, I would like to, no one helped me, so I'd like to help those. You know, it was a mystery to me. I didn't know from it. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know anyone who knew any writers. It was just a total mystery. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be a mystery. And um, I think there are some things you can do and um, not do to help your chances. Yeah. Um, well, that's pretty cool. And I wouldn't get from that answer that you had anything to do with, uh, you know, comedy or anything. I just get that you're a cool dude who's who's done some work and... Well, I think I mean, everyone has to work. Uh, and that's one of the things I didn't know necessarily. I thought it would be a lot of fun. And it is fun. But you're off the beaten track. You're on your own. And really, in the end, you do have to work very hard. Yeah. You know, I, I was lucky enough to, I think, the most I ever made per hour for writing was in college at the college newspaper. <laughs> as a managing editor. And we had so much fun. And we well, never people go into it. They want to have fun, and yeah. and we never had enough like people submitting articles on time, so we had to make things up. You know, <laughs> you mean like Fox News, that sort of. Yeah, well, you know, probably more like the Onion, right? Like we just make things up and make up fake ads because we didn't get enough ads either. You know. Well, that, that is, where did you go to school? Um, well, this was in community college my first two years. So in Bellevue, Washington, Bellevue is like the angry stepchild of Seattle. Um, well, I'm a big proponent of, of community colleges. Um, I, I think that in a lot of times, especially when it comes to writing, you're being taught by people who make a living at it, who are out there hustling, mm -hmm. as opposed to tenured professors in big universities who do not have to go out there and hustle to get an agent, to get an editor, to get published. Um, I think there's an advantage to taking courses from those who are also out there struggling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to go, so you write, you're a writer and, and if people looked you up, they'd find out pretty quickly that your name is associated with a lot of humor 
work as well. Um, or else they'd be perhaps greatly horrified to, by what they found. I don't know, but I, I'm joking. I hope they maybe would be a little horrified. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm most, I'm personally most curious by the, uh, you know, the take on sex, our bodies, our junk written with uh, the yeah. pleasure syndicate. Yes. <laughs> well, that was a, I wanted to write a fake sex manual and, um, you know, like real sex, I needed some help. So I went out to some friends uh, who I have written with over the years, including writers for Daily Show, The Onion, hmm. and um, Bob's Burgers and all that. And, you know, we, we wrote together, we've written together over the years as sort of a writing group. So I guess that came out about 10 years ago, where we spent about six months writing it. And it came out through Random House. And it's really a, um, a book written by an association. It's called the Association for the Betterment of Sex in down in Washington, D.C. Mm. It's pretty clear. So was you, it a public, you know, like a pack? Was that the intention? No, it was more of a, uh, an association where people mm -hmm. would pay uh, these gentlemen uh, for their knowledge. Ah. <laughs> Uh -huh. Hopefully, it's pretty clear these guys really don't know much about sex. Great, yeah. great. And so I, I noticed like a through line on a lot of your like books, early work. You know, you you interview people, you do these collections. There's a lot of collaboration um, in kind of enlisting people who are also like working professionals. And like, how did you end up on that avenue? I think it's an important thing. I, you know, one of the things that I wish I had changed when I first started was to collaborate more and to open myself up. I looked at it as being a competition where it was almost like a tennis match where it was me against another person. Hmm. It's not like that. You really do have to open yourself up to experiences and to other people because your experience will grow and also your comedy will get better. And that's really where we first start liking comedy is fooling around with your friends, making your friends laugh, making others laugh. To be too enclosed is to circle the drain. And I think you lose touch uh, with what is possible. So to me, the best comedy is usually uh, working with others. You know, that, that can be taken to the other extreme where there's too much uh, input from too many people and it becomes sort of bland but if, mm -hmm. if you have people that you like working with i highly recommend that because really especially if you're just starting out those are the people who will hire you down the road to write for magazines for tv and to write for movies and other things it's not necessarily you're not going to be picked off the top of a cv pile it'll be oh i worked with so-and-so back in the day and they were easy to work with and they're fun to work with let's pull him or her aboard and that's really the way it works out there. Um, so I would highly recommend it. Now, the problem is finding people who are on your same sensibility. Mm -hmm. Wavelength if you're writing comedy. <clears throat> but once you do find those people, uh, I think it's important to maintain that relationship and to sort of trust them that the betterment of the product is really the main uh, point, not an ego. So if someone has a joke and the rest don't like it, it's not something one should get down about. You know, as a professional, you want it to read the best it can read, and um, you have to put that behind you. What's most important really is just maintaining that writing relationship. And if that has to, um, you know, if, if it has to do with a joke that you're happy with, if they're not happy with, I would highly recommend you just let it go. 
So I imagine to be able to pull that off, you'd have to have um, maybe some sort of shared perspective on what you think the outcomes of your project are and why you're doing it. Right? Well, absolutely. Without like, a doubt, yeah. And so, like, where were your expectations set when you kind of so started a project like that? Well, you never know exactly where it's going to go. You don't want to know exactly where it's going. That's why I'm not a big proponent of outlining. So, but what you do know is that you all share the same humor sensibility. Hopefully, you all have the same humor IQ, and that it, you don't know exactly how it's going to look or end, but you know that you'll all be happy with the product that you yourself and the rest of the group would have enjoyed. Hmm. And that's really all you can hope for is that you're working with people who get it. And in this case, get it is just get your sensibility and sense of humor. It's a rare thing to find that, you know, I think a lot of people, including myself, grew up with a lot of friends who may not have gotten your sense of humor or may not have liked the movies you liked or the books you liked, especially mm. if you went into comedy professionally. So I do think it's important. And the most important thing is to, um, is just to have a similar outlook. I mean, it's like getting into any romantic relationship. You don't know how it's going to end. You kind of hope for the best and know that there are more similarities and differences and you just hope it works out. Yeah. And were any of you like thinking, oh, we're going to do this and it's going to be a bestseller? Or were you thinking this is, you know, we're going to have a good time and we're going to make this? No, it was never, ever about a bestseller. I think if you think that way, I think it's delusional in comedy, especially, you know, we're knowledgeable enough to know that our sense of humor may not be the type you're going to see on Oprah or in an airport bookstore. Um, we wanted, what was most important to us was to put out a product we were happy with and quite frankly, to be paid for it. So the advance was good. Mm -hmm. We had full realm, uh, full control. And as far as it doing well, you know, we would only hope that it would do, you know, a quarter of what an onion book would do. Mm -hmm. you, you never know, um, how it's going to do. And to think that it's going to be a hit, you know, sometimes you don't want a comedic hit because a comedic hit for a book is a, is a quickie book sometimes that goes bad very quickly, whether it's about Trump, mm. current events, or cats versus dogs, or, or any of that. Sometimes you want to avoid a hit like that. Right. So something that can get dated quickly. or Right. And I think, you know, what I grew up liking was not, you know, I remember coming across books of Art Buckwald's column in the library a few years after they were published, and they might as well have been published a thousand years ago. And then coming across books that were written a thousand year, years ago of Aristophanes and, you know, plays that were comedic that because they were character based to me seemed fresher. And mm -hmm. um, to me, that became an important thing is not to become dated and to put out something that's character. I mean, everything is going to be dated, of course, but why pigeon yourself? Why uh, paint yourself into the corner when there's enough you have to worry about? And mm -hmm. I, I prefer to keep it open ended. Hmm. Well, so it sounds like by this point, you're kind of, you've hit your stride in a way, even if the results, I don't know where the results were by that point for your career, but like, why, I guess backing up, like, why, why did you get into writing? Did you, was it writing first or comedy, you know, getting to comedy first and writing was a way to get there or like, how did well, you end really, up? I, I wasn't a good student. And what I enjoyed 
didn't have to do with school. It had to do with books, movies, pop culture, and comedy. And, um, you know, I wanted, my dream was to write for David Letterman, and mm. I didn't know how to do it. So the only way that I felt I could do it um, was to write and write for myself, write for the page. You know, I, I couldn't write for TV as a 15 year old or movies. So I just started writing and it, it worked out where my preference is for the written page, actually. Mm. Um, it's really the wrong way to go about doing it. I didn't know it at the time, but uh, looking back, I, I looked at it as being like baseball where you get called up for the minor leagues if someone notices your work and then you end up writing for TV. It's not the way it works, but I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, it did provide me with a, um, a good background. You know, I started writing pretty early. So by the time I was in my mid-20s, I had been doing it for 10 years, which I think is what you need to discover your own voice and to determine what works and what doesn't work. I think it's very, very important. I don't think there's any other way to do that than to just sit down and write. And if that is a problem for you, writing may not be your uh, vocation. Yeah, and I, I'm going to assume if you just started sitting down and writing at 15 that you were consuming a lot of things, like your taste was being informed by something. Along it was really very particular. I mean, what I liked... I didn't like a lot of things, but what I liked, I really liked. And, um, you know, whether it was Letterman or Albert Brooks or David mm. Sedaris or Meryl Marco, um, Dorothy Parker, early National Lampoon, Mad Magazine. It's just stuff that I, I came upon and really liked. So if, if I was influenced by anything, it was really not the things taught in school, but the things I was reading to avoid school. Mm -hmm. That, that makes sense. And like you started writing and you were informed by, by what you were reading and what you enjoyed. And why did you keep up with it? Was it just something like, what were you getting out of it? That was a value to keep going with it. I don't know. In retrospect, I mean, I had a whole box, whole closet full of reject. They sent rejection letters back then. It wasn't an email. Hmm. I don't know why. I mean, I, uh, I don't know if it was stubbornness or literally having, you know, I worked retail for 10 years, so I could have done other things and I did do other things. But the one thing I did want to do was basically just be left alone to write. Mm. And uh, I didn't know how to go about it. So that was, that was really the, uh, the voyage as they say. Mm. And that's, that's something you have to teach yourself. No, no, no teacher can tell you what is going to happen. I mean, you're really off the beaten track and the highs are going to be high and the lows are going to be low, but really the trick is just to keep moving forward and hope something happens. Yeah. Like, how did you even know to submit to things? Like where you, you must've been like doing some research and been pretty driven. It was um, mostly interviews with writers talking about their beginnings, whether it was, you know, E.B. White or writers for New Yorker or writers for National Lampoon or MAD, I would just read what they said and what they did. Now, it, it, this would take place 30, 40 years before I came on, but I assumed the process wasn't too different. I mean, no one sat down and said, you have to do this, you have to do that. But you learn pretty quickly what works and what doesn't work once you start receiving rejections. Mm -hmm. and also some some acceptances 
Um, it's really just a matter of figuring it out uh, for yourself. But it really did come from learning from others who had made it. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to put out a book of interviews mm. with more recent comedy writers to find out what worked for them and what didn't work for them and hopefully help those who are just beginning, who may not know the route to take or what to do or what not to do. I mean, really the, the perfect reader for me when I put out these interview books was uh, someone skipping math class in the high school library and just coming yeah. across it and just thinking, okay, this, this is, this is my future. This is my destiny is, is this sort of life. You know, it's not going to be much money necessarily, but it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you think that there's like a clear moment where you shifted from being an amateur to a professional? Well, I don't know when that moment would have come. I mean, when I first started getting published, it was mostly free. I wasn't being paid. So I don't even know if I be, would have been looked at as being a professional. Um, yeah. I mean, there were certain instances where I felt that I had broken through and, um, and felt that I had figured something out to uh, improve the writing. Um, and that, to me, meant more than making you know, money on a, on a certain piece. Because yeah, I've written a lot of pieces that I don't like that I was paid for, and a lot of pieces that I've written I love that I wasn't paid for. Mm -hmm. To me, what's important is to put out what you want, how you want to do it. And it did take me a while to get to that point. Hmm. Would you have even known what you wanted early on when you were doing those pieces? No, I don't think so. I think you, the toolbox is so sparse when you first start off. I don't, I don't even think you know what you want. I mean, I, I think you know what you like, but I don't know if, if you know how to get there. And that really just comes through trial and error. You know, hmm. my big breakthrough really was, I'm not going to write like a New Yorker writer. I'm not going to write like S.J. Perlman. I'm not going to write like Groucho Marx. I, I write as as a suburbanite outside D.C. in Maryland and Virginia, and that's growing up in the 80s and 90s, and that's what I know, and I, you can't fake it. And really, in the end, the jokes are, are just, you just want to put them in, in a Trojan horse and get it through. So... Mm. I, I spent too much time on what does a sentence is, is a, a well-written sentence would my English teachers like in the end that really doesn't matter I mean your style comes about through your comedy and you have to get it across as seamlessly as possible so once that um, once I figured that out it became a lot easier and more fun mm. It sounds like you're taking the pressure off of yourself. So you do, yeah, exactly. You have to. You, you can't put too much pressure. It's hard enough. But really put it out there in your own style. and Because um, otherwise it, it sounds fake, it reads fake. And you're not... Everyone's style is basically what you are not capable of doing. And mm -hmm. I wasn't capable of doing a lot. And um, that's just what your style becomes. And you have no... Um, choice really i mean you are who you are your sensibility is who your sensibility is and if you fake it it's especially in comedy it's, it's going to be very apparent yeah but then you have to like embrace the fact that you're just kind of who you are already and right. well <laughs> you that's can't, just you can't keep putting it off right and striving for something at that point i mean D david sedaris is david sedaris i i couldn't be david sedaris i mean he's a genius and and he is 
you know, he is alone in who he is. I would love to be him, but I'm not. And I think a lot of people try to be something or someone they are not. And when you really look at the best comedy, especially stand-ups, whether it's Richard Pryor or any of these stand-ups, they really became, they really started to fly once they became true to themselves and mm. dropped the pretense, whether it was George Carlin dropping the hippy-dippy weatherman persona mm. and becoming who he was, Richard Pryor telling stories about growing up in Ohio. I mean, that is really when they started, they reached cruising altitude and that to me was another lesson in that you have to really um, just sort of get, get within yourself and put out what you are and who you are and the truth. And whether you're from the suburbs or from the inner city or you're from, you know, Canada or New Orleans, it doesn't matter. Just use what you have uh, to the best of your ability. Cause that is who you are. You have no choice. That's you can't redo your childhood. Mm. You can't redo your early adulthood. I mean, that's, just who you are well you could try if you just write middle grade and ya as a career well you know quite frankly a lot of comedy writers do rewrite their childhoods and especially their adolescent because a lot of it bullshit you know like whether it's animal house or any of these movies you you can sort of sense they're rewriting <laughs> what they want want wanted their childhood or, or teenage hood to be to have been like mm. and I found a lot of it is nonsense i mean that's why when you see honesty whether it's freaks and geeks or anything about honest childhood, to me that rings more true than mm. other type of stories, which to me read more like fantasy or science fiction. Yeah. I've been noticing like this creeping in, like with like say shows on Netflix in the last year or two, more of shows leaning into the awkward real moments, like people who are having exceptional stories and exceptional things happen to them, but having these very grounded moments from from real life brought into it well yeah i mean you look at a show like pen 15 have you seen that show no that's a work of genius i mean it's amazing what these two have done these two actresses it's so honest i mean it's so honest to the point where i've watched it with female friends and they couldn't watch it it was too painful mm, mm-hmm. that's that it's real honesty and it's really honest and there's no bullshit and to me <laughs> Yeah. I didn't. I was never a girl. I never went through female adolescence. But to me, I can uh, sympathize with it because you see the characters are so strong, and the stories are so deep and resonates that the char- that humor becomes that much more powerful. I mean, to me, it's one of the best shows of the last decade. Mm, Pen fifteen. It's on Hulu. On Hulu. Okay, that's why I haven't heard of it. It just made me think of you know saying the painful bit like. You know, I, I mean this lightly, but it's also true. Like I remember trying to watch Portlandia with my wife back <laughs> and, and she couldn't watch it because it's too realistic. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of, that's you, the know, thing. you know, these like, are people I, we, I, I we know, that. we know these people, you know? Well, that's the thing. Like, I, I have been to Portland. I never lived there. I don't know the area well, but I mm. love that show because to me, I sensed it was tethered to something very real. Yeah. And what it was making fun of was a subject matter and a group that the writers and actors knew very well. Mm. Uh, I don't always get that sense. I mostly don't get that sense from comedies. But when it works, that's that's what you want to feel. You know, I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, I was listening to your, like I mentioned, I was listening to your 
chat with David Sedaris, and you kind of got into this conversational section. I don't want to play that out. We can have a new conversation, but, you know, he was talking about a joke that didn't work and he got feedback on, and he kind of changed his mind about whether it was a, you know, good joke. Right. And like the idea of, should we be telling jokes that are offensive and should we care when we offend other people? Right. Like there's kind of an interesting dynamic in comedy where you understand your sub subtext and what you're going for, hopefully. And the people, depending on how you execute it, people may or may not feel like it's funny or appropriate, right? Like underpinning this whole journey of being a, a comedy writer is, is that, that reality that you may be crucified for what you say. Right. And I think that's why a lot of people in comedy go sort of crazy because you can be in, in comedy writing for 50 years and you still don't know what the reaction is going to be. Which well, it feels like your career could end at any time, right? It could end, like. Especially these days. But I don't know if I brought this out with David at that point. I've talked about it other times. Is I, I think you know audiences, readers, whomever, are not going to like every joke you do. And they may be offended in uh, certain instances, but I think as long as they know that you're you are on the right path that your load star was directed towards goodness and not meanness um i think then you should as as a reader or as a viewer or whomever accept that sort of thing not every joke is going to work but i think if if the um creator's intention was obviously for good whether it's satirizing this or satirizing that and even if they come out against something where you know that they are actually for something, I think if, if you realize that their heart is in the right place, then it should be accepted. Yeah. But if you do see something that is, is, is told out of meanness or spite or ignorance or racism or what misogyny or what have you, then that is what I have a problem with. Not that a joke didn't work dealing mm -hmm. with a complicated subject. Yeah, but that's a tricky evolving <clears throat> target, I would imagine, especially just as you grow as a person, right? Like, what? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's if you're going to deal with human emotions and issues, you're going to tread across some um, some subject matter that might offend certain people. I mean, the times have changed. You, you see how satire was dealt in the early 70s with National Lampoon where they would have this very, very slash and burn, hard-hitting satire. Mm -hmm. I don't think that would be accepted today, even if people felt their hearts were in the right places. So there, there are different things that one has to keep aware of, but I don't think that should stop you from moving forward as a writer and discussing things that bother you yeah. and maybe doing that in a satirical way that not everyone understands. Well, maybe let's ground this a little bit. Like, how... like when when have you really had to deal with this where i imagine there was a point where maybe you wrote something down and thought it was funny and maybe worried about what people were going to think versus when you're more mid-career and you're getting reactions right right well I, i'll give you a specific example when i first started off um i wrote a piece uh in in the voice of a 
upper class critic who was reviewing homeless people and grading them on their outfits and on their ability to earn money. And mm. obviously the whole point was that me almost being homeless myself, it bothered me very much when I would read and see people's reaction to the homeless. But I, I sent that piece out and um, it was sometimes mistaken for you know, me actually reviewing homeless people. Right. So, you know, in retrospect, it was a little too natural lampoon. It was a little too immature. Um, but to this day, one of the things I do like to do is to write under the character of another author, usually a pretty bad author. So it makes it easier for me to write, whether it's a fake <laughs> novelization or a fake memoir or a fake this or a fake that. And oftentimes people will confuse uh, what I write under that character with my feelings um, mm. as a writer or, you know, I can write a character that I don't like. And to me, uh, this character might represent um, a Trumper. Yeah. And uh, I've been, you know, people have sort of mistaken me as condoning that sort of behavior where that is not uh, what, that wasn't my intention. But, you know, I think when you do write certain things, um, you don't want to be too clear. You want to be a little uh, behind the scenes, especially like hiding behind characters. So if people are going to be upset by that, to me, that's fine because I do feel at this point that I have enough in my toolbox to, um, to put it out there the way I want it to read. And mm. if they don't get it, if they confuse me with the character, then that's more on them than it is on me. Yeah. You know, and that's going to happen. So but now I imagine what jumps out to me when you're talking about that is, you know, just from a writer perspective, you know, I'm wondering, so when you're doing that and you're say you're putting yourself into the shoes of somebody you may disagree with, is this the protagonist in your story or a side character? Well, in one case, um, I put out a book called Randy and uh, it's actually going to be re-released from Simon and Schuster in February. And that was, uh, I supposedly found this memoir and bought it at a garage sale and I was republishing it, mm. but it was really about this awful character named Randy who lives in the suburbs of Maryland, uh, quite similar to a lot of people I grew up with. Um, but in the eyes of, um, a memoirist and mm. hopefully it was clear through the asides from the memoir writer about Randy that he didn't like this guy, but had to pretend that he did. Mm. They created um, a little distance there. Right. There's, yeah. you, you do have to create some distance. I mean, I think that was a problem with Andrew Dice Clay when he would go out there and tell jokes in this, even if it was under a character guys, he would, you know, I remember one joke uh, he told about convenience store clerks being in the color of, of urine. And, <laughs> It was it, it wasn't the joke that bothered it was the joke that bothered mm -hmm. me, but it was also the audience's reaction because when he was at Madison Square Garden telling this joke, when he got a standing ovation, they weren't apl applauding his character and the satire behind the character. They were applauding the joke. Yeah. And to <laughs> that's, me that's that requires its own examination. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that's misguided comedy. Um, mm. I don't think at any time should a character like that working in a convenience store and being a foreigner, why go after that type of character? I mean, there's, there's so many type of characters one can go after. Yeah. And I think, um, 
I mean, that, that's my favorite type of character to go after is one who deserves it. And yeah. um, hopefully all the characters that I've written in a fake positive light uh, come across as, as deserving their fate and deserving the way we, we look down on them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've personally, my own approach is the best way for me to um, punch, <laughs> you know, go after a character is to get inside their head, right? Like, because otherwise you're just kind of hitting, you know, I don't know, just a caricature, right? Or, you know, I think that's one of the powers of written written word is that you can actually get in somebody's head and examine why they do what they do and maybe question their assumptions with the scenarios yeah, you, they put them in. you have to there. get in their head. You have yeah. to. I mean, Otherwise, it won't be it won't be effective. And I'm all for getting in other people's heads, even if they're bad people. I mean, I like feelings. I like characters that are not likable, but are strangely likable because you feel sorry for them. Mm. You know, that to me is my favorite type of character. They're not bad people, but you wouldn't want to go on a camping trip with them necessarily. But in order to get the, the jokes across and the character across, you do have to understand them. Yeah. And um, I see nothing wrong with understanding uh, people who are not always nice or don't always agree with what we agree with as writers. Yeah. And so what do you, like, this conversation comes up in comedy is the only place I really hear it in comedy writing is the concept of punching up. Right. What does that mean to you? And like, how do you feel? What's your perspective on that? Well, I feel the perfect example is that is the Andrew Dice Clay joke. When he's mm-hmm. talking about a foreigner working in a convenience mart and being a different color, it's not, to me, smart humor. Um, and that's, to me, you should really go after those worthy of going after. And mm-hmm. someone working for $6 an hour trying to better their, their lives and their kids' lives, I don't see the comedic purpose of that. Right. satirical purpose um i think if you know it was a character who was ignorant and was an american uh, ignorant about foreigners that to me would interest me more than just going after foreigners you know there's so much out there that's wrong with the world mm. i don't think comedy what is ever going to solve it but i do think that it's a powerful tool that you have to use on those who are worthy of its um, treatment, you know, worthy of receiving it. And I don't think um, a convenience store worker, you know, that to me would be punching down. Now punching up would be going after Mitch McConnell or going after uh, someone may, who may not even be in a position of power, but who likes Mitch McConnell, yeah, who may not understand uh, the ignorance of a, of a lot of things. I think there's a lot of ignorance one can go after and uh, why waste time on going after those who don't deserve it? I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm always angry watching the news. Why would you not want to go on, go after certain people? You know, um, it'd be like uh, picking on a, on a puppy or something like why do it? It's just, it's just a waste of time. There's no purpose to it. You know, and the best comedy has always been going after those who are worthy of being mocked. Yeah, and uh, it's always been those in power, those with money, those with ignorance. Yeah, and sometimes uh, we can. Never been. Yeah, it's never been the under the underdog. There's no reason to go after the underdog. Mm. 
I think there's a certain safety maybe in like going after our younger selves. Right? Sure. Absolutely. Because that, that ties in with going after people who might think they know more than they do. Hmm. And I can certainly go after my earlier self because I was, my heart may have been the right place, but I didn't know as much as I probably thought I did. Yeah. That's fine. I mean, I think going after yourself is always fine, but to uh, there's no reason to be a bully. And I've seen it in comedy where there are bullies and some people like it, but I don't. And I think that the best comedy is never hurtful uh, towards those who are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just see no purpose in it. Yeah. So I'm going to segue a little bit. Like you, you've done novelizations as well that are kind of satirical, right? Um, and one I'm looking at is Stinker Let's Loose, right? And I have a couple thoughts about the questions about that. Like one is how do you decide like what, cause you must get a lot of ideas. How do you decide what project merits moving forward with and putting investing a lot of effort into like at this, uh, at this well, point, yeah. I imagine that's evolved over time, like how you choose, but it, it's a strange thing. It's, um, yeah, I'll come up with an idea. I'll put it away. And if I come back to it and still interests me, and if, if I feel it's worthy of working on for six months or so, then I'll continue with it. Some things I just have to get out. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, I do know at this point that if I do work on it, it's going to be a, a months long process. Some ideas to me are worthy of that and some others aren't. I mean, it's almost like feeling an idea in your hand. Certain ideas have weight. And for some reason, uh, Sinker Let's Loose, which is, based on an imaginary 1977 trucking and CB movie. It just was something I wanted to do. Right. Um, I just felt that it was the right time to do it. I hadn't seen anything done on that era. And I felt that this character sort of um, was uh, connected to the present day. And it just seemed like a fun thing. And also, quite frankly, at that time, I had been writing a lot of pieces for magazines that I wasn't happy with that had been edited or rewritten about current events. I just wanted to do something that was purely for my own joy and benefit mm. and not for something, not, not for money um, and not for anything really, but just to put it out there the way I wanted it to be. And then it was a, it was a good lesson because I did that. And then it, you know, became an audio book with John Hamm playing Stinker and Ray Seahorn from Better Call Saul and Paul F. Tompkins and, Andy Richter. So when you put out something that you like, that's individual, and you're not doing it to just to get readers or to get money, a lot yeah. of times good things can happen from that. Well, and maybe, so I love that you talk about, like, linked that you did something purely for your own joy, and then it had these unintended consequences that were pretty awesome. And maybe for the audience's benefit, talk more about, like, how did this audiobook version come about? Well, okay, well, that is it was interesting when it happened because I didn't expect it. I, I put it, I put the book out there. I self published it, which is another advantage to writers today. You don't have to get an agent. You don't have to wait two years to get published a, with a humor book. You can put something out next week. And mm -hmm. if you do it properly, you know, which is get it designed and write it well and edit it well. 
So I, that's what I decided to do. I was going to put out my own book. And if 15 people came across it or 1,000 or 10,000, it didn't really even matter. I just wanted that product, something tangible out in the world that I was happy with. Hmm. And when you do that, good things tend to happen. So I, I put the book out. I sent it out uh, advertising it, not advertising, but talking about it on an email list that I've kept over the years. And one of the recipients was a guy named Eric Martin, who is an audio producer of books. And he got in touch with me and said, can I buy, or can I have the rights to this, to put it out as an audio book? Now, I really didn't think much about it. And I said, sure, go ahead. I didn't ask for money. I just said, that's fine. If you can do that, that would be great. Mm. Didn't not expecting anything. And then, you know, within the month, uh, it was sold to Audible. Um, and then John Hamm came aboard. And then others started coming aboard. And it doesn't take much for something good to happen if it exists. If I had pitched this, it would never would have been purchased. But if I had something to show to people, this is done, they like that more. And it was a good lesson for me that sometimes too much time is spent on pitching rather than just doing what you want to do. And if it takes six months, sometimes it's worth just doing it just to have something on your, on your shelves, you know, on your shelves or something you can send to someone that they can hold in their hands and read. And it was because I did that and produced it and put it out there that that audio book was made. And then because of that audio book, then another audio book came across and then another one. So mm. things started happening because of that. That's pretty cool. And then you ended up, I don't know that you have much of a relationship with John Hamm, but you ended up <clears throat> using his, his headshot. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, I don't, I know I'm very, very, not, not well at all. Uh, he's a super nice guy. I've emailed him just a few times and I did email him um, asking him if he would be on the cover for my book, Poking a Dead Frog, which was a group, of, a collection of interviews with commie writers. And he very nicely said yes. So a friend of mine who's a photographer photographed him one day and he did all these poses. And the publisher turned out to not want him on the cover for some reason, the world's best looking man. So I went back to John and said, I'm so sorry. Um, we can't put you on the cover. They don't want you on the cover, but I have an idea. Would you pose for my author shot? And I mean, can we use one of the photos for my office shot? And he said, sure. Um, which I love because I never really understand author photos. It's, to me, especially when you look like myself, there's no purpose to them. It's not going to sell books. But if you have someone like John Hamm yeah. pretending to be you, to me, that's the perfect antidote because you know, he's a great looking guy. Everyone loves him. And uh, why not have him rather than me? I mean, who the hell needs me on the back cover? I guess I can see the point, right? Like my neighborhood book club probably wouldn't pick up the book on, on the merits of your photo. But. <laughs> right. They don't need to see me. I'm, you know, I look like a duck. I don't, they don't need to see me. But it's also a, a, just a sort of fun thing to do. You know, I just thought, why not? It is um, a fun. It is a fun thing. Why the hell not? I guess that you get this extra, maybe this extra leverage and rope. <laughs> um when you do comedy, right? Like you, you can oh, yeah, get away absolutely. with that. Right. This isn't a um, 900 page book on the Holocaust, right? This is uh, interviews with comedy writers. So the leeway is more 
and you can have more fun with it. And I think more fun should be had. I think too many authors take themselves too seriously. Mm. Uh, there's no reason not to have fun with it. Yeah, I I personally use that these days as my own like decision point. If I have four different book ideas, I'm probably going to write the one that feels the most fun right now. Well, you have to. I mean, because the the book will turn out better, and the readers will know that you felt this was the most fun. Hmm. It just comes through. You know, it comes across. Yeah. So, how did Passable and Pink come about? That seems like a feels like from looking outside in it feels like a departure from well not too much because what i wanted to do after i wrote the novelization to the imaginary 70s movie i wanted to do the same thing for an 80s movie and uh, i thought the perfect uh way in would be a john hughes type of movie because these are the movies i grew up watching as a kid and i've recently tried to show them to my daughter who is 11 Mm-hmm. And it's like watching something from a hundred years ago. It just felt very <laughs> off. Mm-hmm. So I thought that would be a good thing to, you know, sort of sink my teeth into. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of satirical elements you can do um, about the difference between movies then and uh, the way we treated teenagers then and women then versus now. Yeah, I just thought it was rich enough for that. So I wrote that book, put it out. And um, that got bought by Audible. And then, you know, once someone comes on board, in this case, it was Gillian Jacobs, then other people start coming aboard, Adam Scott and Bobby Moynihan and Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn, mm-hmm. Lorraine Newman, Judd Nelson. So, I mean, it was just a fun project, uh, which is why I put out a third book uh novelization that's coming out in about a month it's called slouchers hmm. and that is on <laughs> like you know, slackers yeah it's, it's uh 1992 gen x type of movie singles reality bites clerks, yeah that sort of you thing. and i are clearly of a generation and <clears throat> yeah yeah um i always hated those sort of movies those gen x movies and this sort of takes yeah the, me too out. it didn't help my dating life at all <laughs> well nothing helped my dating life um but this sort of depressed me because even at that time when I had no job, I wasn't even as accomplished as the slackers. You know, I was doing nothing. So I felt bad within even that context. And I watched those movies again recently and they do not age well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't Every once in a while I get like this cool bonus soundtrack that, that stands above the movie. Well, right. I mean, uh, pump up the volume is an example of that a uh, great soundtrack uh, like the movie at the time, can't stand it now. Uh, but yeah, m- uh, music was a big part of my life. Then I was working in a record store and it's a big part of those movies. And then a big part of this book slouchers, uh, yeah. the main character is a Matt Dame, not Matt Damon, Matt Dillon type of character from singles, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a grunge singer. Yeah. And so how do you like, have you thought about that? Like, how do you incorporate that? music and love of music into the written word well it it has to come through the characters and um i think it has to be of its time you can't look back i mean you you are looking back with today's eyes but you know the way that these bands were written about the time in spin magazine or pulse magazine through tower records or rolling stone Mm -hmm. was just so wide-eyed and wondrous Um, yes that i sort of find interesting now because most of the music was just garbage 
Um, I remember I, I, that at the time, feeling that way at the time. Yeah, right. It was obvious. Um, but so much, so much of it beyond Nirvana and Pearl Jam was just marketing crap. And uh, I, I try to make fun of that. But I do, I do put in real references. And I, actually, I also uh, deal with like the high fidelity thing that sort of bugs me. You know, I worked in a record store for 10 years. And whenever I tell people that, they say, oh, is it like high fidelity? fidelity is like no it's definitely not like high fidelity high fidelity to me with all the lists um and all that record store cliche mm -hmm. it bothers me it just annoys me so i, I tried I, I created a character in there who's sort of like the john cusack character in high fidelity but much much more annoying mm. so a lot of the stuff that i i do like to write about is either stuff that bothers me in a political sense or just bothers me in a personal standpoint it just annoys me. I just I want to make fun of uh, of that. Like in this case, it would be the the elitism of of what you would see in in high fidelity of record store clerks. I never liked that elitism. I saw a lot of people try to adopt it after that movie came out. Um, so that's one of the characters that I write about, uh, and hopefully, it's clear that I am not a fan of that type of yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that, like thinking about, so you've been doing this a while, like the purpose, like underlying intent when you write these days, right? Like the so one, it sounds like there's some sort of catharsis to go after these topics and maybe you have a lot to say. Are you hoping to change somebody's mind or to connect with people who feel the same way that you do? Or uh, I don't, well, I think a little bit of both, uh, but I think, it, it is like I, I write not out of anger, but annoyance a lot of mm -hmm. times. And um, if, if something annoys me, I do want to make fun of it. Um, now, this is not going to change the world, but maybe if someone didn't grow up in the early 90s and reads this book, they might come, they might come to these uh, Gen X movies differently. They might see that it was not like it was in the movies, mm -hmm. that it, it was just this, you know, vision of a screenwriter who probably never worked in a record store or skated in a uh, abandoned parking lot or whatever. A lot of it was just fictional as a Disney movie. Yeah. So, I mean, but I'm, I'm not out there to try to change the entire world's viewpoint on these movies. It's just something that annoys me. And um, I like to write when annoyed. I mean, some people like to write when mad. Yeah. I think that sort of is too powerful. Mm -hmm. that overpowers your, your work. But I think, and in, in with comedy, I think to be annoyed is a good thing, a healthy thing. Yeah. Do you find yourself curious, like exploring, trying to explain, find explanations for why something is the way it is, why people are doing what they do? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't have any answers for why anyone would vote for Trump. What would interest me is creating a character who would vote for Trump and why that specific character would vote for Trump. I don't think that that type of character is going to change anyone voting. It's just me sort of putting it out there. Like to me, this is the type of person who would vote for Trump. And this is why, and I don't think he is uh, correct. I don't think he's intelligent. Mm. Um, you know, from, so from a comedic standpoint, there's a lot that we, you can get away with. I don't think it's going to change anyone's minds. You know, that's part of the problem, I think, with late night TV. It's just become white noise where there's too many jokes. There's so many jokes. I don't think it's moved the needle one iota for any voter. 
Mm-hmm. I think you go to jokes like you would go to op-ed pages. You, you read what reinforces your already pre-existing idea. Yeah. And I think that um, the power of good comedy, which I think I, I saw recently in Borat, like to me it was like, okay, I can see someone watching this and, and them being changed politically a little bit. Mm. I can't see that happening to listening to a Stephen Colbert joke. I just yeah. don't know anyone who is going to change their mind uh, from listening to a late night joke these days. There's, there's something more immersive about sitting still for an hour or two, right? Versus a four minute setup. And oh, without fine. a doubt. I mean, when you look at Letterman or any late night show from the 80s, it seems like it's five times slower. I mean, everything moves so much slower. So when you see a late night now, it's all geared towards YouTube clips. It's all geared towards being shown on Vulture. Right. Or, or being shared you. as a 30 second clip on Instagram right. um, feed. Yeah. It's not something, you know, I, I kind of feel for those writers who have to do that. Not only do that, but to think, I have to think about Trump every day. I mean, I would lose my mind. That's not why I went into comedy writing and I'm, I'm imagining that's not why they went in either to think about this toxic presence every single day and knowing that you're really not making much of a difference to me that would be very very frustrating yeah sounds like a character to explore <laughs> well there you go and actually i am exploring it um i'm writing a memoir of a comedy writer Ooh, yeah that could get dark how, how are you gonna how are you gonna walk that line um, by showing, uh, that he is not on the right side. Mm. He is, uh, he, he's gone to the dark side. Mm. Mm. Well, do you have, <laughs> that's exciting. And so I guess I should ask, like, is what's motivating you now to keep going? Like, not much truthfully i mean <laughs> and that's a, well, I, you know it's okay to like to, to to have a you know well i i rounded answer there yeah. uh i am very anxious i'm very disappointed with with how things are going i'm not an optimist mm. really the only reason i keep writing is because i feel i have to mm. i you know i suffer from uh I suffer from depression and anxiety and OCD. So the only way for me to not feel that Mm. is one of three ways. One is alcohol, the other is exercise, and the third is writing. And if I don't do it every day, uh, you know, I'd like to avoid alcohol, but uh, exercise and writing is really the only way I can avoid that. And if I don't, then I'm an absolute mess. So I really Mm. feel I have to do it. It's almost like a medicine. Yeah. It's a very strong energy. And if I don't focus that anxiety and depression into something positive, I think I, I would uh, circle the drain very, very quickly. Yeah. It sounds like a perk that you can get paid for that then if it has that much personal benefit, right? Yeah. I mean, the life is miserable, but at least there is an end product that comes from that, you know, um, and in, in my case, hopefully it's just producing day after day after day um, rather than, you know, doing something else in an OCD sense. At least this is a, the power that's pushing towards a positive outcome. Yeah. Something will be produced. 
So how are you how are you handling staying connected and maybe having some of that collaboration vibe right now with things as they are like the you mean missing out on the collaboration? Well, you, you know, I don't know if you're missing out or not, but you know, obviously times are strange and travel's difficult and you know. Yeah, I think it's um it takes me back to a time I didn't like in my early 20s where I was too isolated. I don't think it's healthy. Mm. Uh, for you as a person or as a writer and i see too much isolation and i think everyone's sort of losing their minds because they're in this they're in their own little bubbles and um i don't think it's a good situation for writers or anyone and mm. i think that people are sort of at the end of their tethers and i think if if the election turns out differently in a week then i hope it will i'm wondering um and i, I fear that there's going to be a lot of uh, a bad outcome for a number of writers as far as depression and suicide and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I, I really am hopeful that things will turn out differently but i i just see a possibility for darkness and it scares me yeah so what what can we do to be supportive of our community then right now. And I think it is, you know, whether it's reach, you, I think to reaching out, whether it's by a phone call, email, text, hmm. you know, to just remind people they're not forgotten. That, that, that's really the fear I think most people have in life is to be forgotten. And it's a big fear. It's, it's very hardwired. Yeah. And I think that, for a lot of people, especially in comedy, they may feel that. So, I mean, if there's someone out there whose work you like and you haven't heard from them in a while, reach out to them. Tell them that their work means a lot. I, mm. I can guarantee you that will make the, their week. I mean, it doesn't take much. And I do feel we have to remain strong and go through this together. It's just madness. But I think if your heart is in the right place and you feel you're moving forward with a group that's also going towards a positive place. Uh, that has helped me. Um, yeah. But I do think, um, and the isolation aspect is very uh, disturbing to me. I think uh, people can spin away very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And maintaining community, it seems like social media is probably not the best way to keep in touch with people, right? I don't now. think so. I think it's, it's really not. I mean, it, it doesn't compare with going out and just meeting people you wouldn't have met otherwise. I think it can be too self-referential on social media. You're talking to the same 10 people day after day after day. Mm. I think you do need to meet uh, different pe people from different backgrounds, different experiences. It's just healthy. And um, especially if you're in a comedy and uh, I think living a life and experiencing the world is extremely important. And it's really been knocked down a peg this past year. And I think it's, uh, I just hope it doesn't keep continuing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I should ask, you know, it kind of ties in maybe, um, you know, you've written for a lot of magazines and, and, and newspapers and that kind of thing doing i don't know how you view it like whether it's gig work or you know little jobs or but i imagine there's relationships that you develop over time right 
in, oh, sure. in that process and some sort of value beyond just being in print from yeah that. right i mean if your goal is just to be in print it will not change your life i can guarantee you mm. so what what's some of the value you've gotten out of out of doing that type of work writing for print yeah or work for hire kind of things those kind of things uh well, one is that you have usually, typically in print, you have what you want on the page. It's not you're not writing for a TV show or a movie where it may be rewritten by 15 different writers. So the mm-hmm. money is going to be less, but you're going to have more power. Also, it's you have something that's tangible that lasts. And I think myself, like most people, want don't want to disappear, and they want something out there when they're gone. Mm-hmm. Having something in print does that. I mean, you look at the hundreds of thousands of hours of radio waves that have disappeared or TV shows. I think there's something very uh, permanent about prints, even though uh, who knows whether it'll be all digital in the future or not. I think there's something especially um, permanent about magazines and books where you can keep those for a very long time. You can pass them on to another generation. And one of the frustrations for me, if I were to write, uh, and I have written some for TV and radio and other things, is that it just disappears. It, off it goes, like a wisp held out the window. And I think um, there is something to be said for someone stumbling across your work. And that has happened where someone has stumbled across a book or an article or this or that in the library or bookstore. And it's meant a lot, you know, that someone came across something they wouldn't have come across otherwise. You know, there's just so much stimuli out there to rise above it with something that has a solid presence to me is important. Mm. Mm. I like that. And if there's change tags one more time, since I think we're pretty much up against time, but is, is who's your hero these days? Do you still have a hero like in the, in the business or an inspiration, like kind of a North star? Yeah, I have a few. Um, David Sedaris, Bob Odenkirk, Meryl Marco, and Ian MacKay. Now, Ian MacKay is the lead singer of Fugazi and Minor Threat, mm-hmm. and he's also the owner of Discord Records. And when I was growing up in D.C. in the 80s and 90s, um, that was a really impressive thing to see because it was not a creative city. So to do what Ian was doing, to put out a product that he was happy with and to make a living at it, Mm-hmm. Uh, it was almost magical. So that had a big influence on me, and it still does. And with the rest of them, David and Bob and Merrill, they are very singular, uh, very individual, and they just keep moving forward. And they've created and carved out careers that I think are very, very interesting. Um, never losing sight of, uh, never giving up their own voice, and always uh, just sort of... Um, you know, producing great work consistently without festering and stagnating. And I think that's very important. Mm. How many of these heroes have you been able to meet? I met them all. Uh, the, I, uh, the four I just mentioned, I've been lucky enough to have met. Um, if I can tell anyone any advice, it would be to reach out to those people whose work you like. Mm. It's not as hard as you might think. And yeah, they may not get back to you. But yeah. if you reach out to them not wanting something except to interview them, to ask their advice rather than saying, hey, give me a job, but more like, more like um, can I talk to you about your experience? 
I think a lot of them will get back to you. And I think it's a very important thing to do is to learn what worked for others and what didn't work for them. I mean, save yourself some time and energy, find out what didn't work. So maybe you don't have to go down that career path. Yeah. Um, Also, it's just, it shows you that these are just normal people who have worked very and continue to work very, very hard. And they're not magical and they're not extra special in any specific way beyond that. They're very talented. They had a talent. They put their minds to it. They set forth on this, you know, off this, off this beaten track and they've kept at it. Yeah. And because of that, they've become successful and are certainly happier than they would have been if they had, say, gone into accounting or something. You know, it's mm. been an interesting lives for these people. I think that's important to see, not just um, those who don't make it, but you really do have to reach out to those who have made it and see that it is a possibility. It's not an impossibility that anyone can do it. It just takes hard work and drive. Mm. So having talked to your heroes and having had your own experiences now, do you have a solid idea of what success personally means for you? Like, I think the success is not monetarily uh, based necessarily. I mean, you have to make a career. And if that involves having a two track system uh, where you have one job to pay for insurance and food, you should have, uh, you should allow yourself to do what you want to do, how you want to do it. And you shouldn't have to answer to anyone. If something doesn't feel right to you, hmm. uh, don't do it. You know, one genre or one format is no more important than the next. You don't have to write short stories for New Yorker. You can write funny pieces for yourself. You can write, you can write graphic novels. You don't have to write for the stage. You can write for stand-up. So whatever interests you is no less important than any other thing. I think what is most important is to satisfy your soul where at the end of the day, you're content with what you've produced. Mm. Um, and I think to me, rather than making a lot of money writing for a sitcom you don't want to write for necessarily, uh, is to put out what you want and how you want it to look. And to have that control is very important. And mm. for me, at the end of the day, putting out these articles, putting out these books, putting out these audio books, that to me, that to me makes me the most f- fulfilled, um, even though I'm not rich from it. But um, you, you meet interesting people from it, and good things happen when you put out stuff that you are happy with. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's why you got into writing to begin with, not to write jokes for shit my father says. You know, you, you got into it because it interested you, and you wanted to put out what you wanted to put out. And I think in the end, that is the most important thing. I mean, no amount of money can compare with it. Mm. That's great. Well, Mike, for people who want to know more about you, how can they find you? Uh, MikeStacks.com, um, also on uh, Amazon or other book sites. Uh, the new book is called Slouchers. And the last by the time this comes out, it might be out. What's the release date? The release date is December eighth, but it'll be on for, on sale in about a week, right after the <laughs> right after the election, for better or for worse. Okay, so on pre-order. Yeah. Cool. You know what? And also my email's online and reach out to me if you want. I don't mind at all talking to people. I, I never understood like it, someone saying, Oh, I don't have time to write an email, but really you don't have time to write to someone. It, it doesn't take much. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I like meeting new people. So, you know, I am certainly reachable out there and uh, maybe I'll hear from you. Well, cool. I, I'm, I did. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's why we're here. Right. 
Yeah. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.